Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 2 today. Revelation chapter 2. I read a report recently that was done looking at single-engine airplane accidents. The study was done of one company in particular. They looked at 44 fatal or near-fatal accidents on these single-engine airplanes. And here's what they discovered, the result of the survey. First of all, of all the accidents, most of them were listed as pilot error. Second thing they found out is the thing that surprised them most is experienced pilots were responsible for the majority of those accidents. You would think it would be the inexperienced pilots who would be crashing the airplanes. It was the experienced ones because the experienced pilots took some things for granted. They didn't do the walk around like they should. They didn't check the instruments like they should. They thought that since they were experienced, they could just kind of kick back and relax and let some things go. Well, Jesus has a word to the church at Pergamum that we're going to look at today, this letter to that church. And I think this church had done what many of those experienced pilots do. They kind of fall into the, the mindset of everything's going okay, and I can just coast, and I don't have to worry about some of the details. And this church ended up being a compromising church, so that's what we're going to look at today. Verse 12 in chapter 2. Jesus says, Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum, Remember we said the angel of the church is the messenger of the church, the pastors of those seven churches. The one who has the sharp double-edged sword says, by the way, that's Jesus speaking of his judgment, this sharp sword of judgment, and it's, it's a harsh way to begin this letter because he has a harsh word for this church. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, and you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan lives. That's a good thing. But I have a few things against you. That's not a good thing to hear Jesus say, is it? Things are going well, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way... You also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Remember, we were introduced to those last time. Therefore, repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. That sort of judgment. Verse 17, anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor some of the hidden manna. And I will also give him a white stone. And on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Well, let's look at what Jesus has to say. There's some words of approval and accusation and then a rebuke for them and some admonition and exhortation. And then he ends with a promise. That, that's the outline of this passage. But I want to walk through here and just look at these verses and give you a principle or two from that church that applies to us. Remember we said all of these seven churches were literal churches in Asia Minor. 
They were little churches with literal pastors, and they were given this letter because that situation was as it was. We said, so that's the truth. The second truth is these churches represent other churches throughout church history who have been in the same place. Now, then, then we said that the things that Jesus had to say to those churches apply to us also. We said also as individuals we need to listen because he may just be speaking to an individual about the needs of this passage. So let's look at some principles. Number one begins in verse 13 there. Genuine Christianity will always spark pressure and problems. Genuine Christianity. He says the, in verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, and you're holding on to my name and do not deny your faith in me. He's saying you're in this place of struggle, struggle to deny your faith. He says my faithful witness, Antipas, was killed among you. By the way, that word witness is where we get our word martyr. So he was martyred among you. They were facing this pressure, but they refused to bow down to the pressure. And because of that, some of them were facing even loss of life, many loss of their jobs. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2, those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Can I say that again? 2 Timothy 3.12, those of us who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's the church at Pergamum. That was their desire. Jesus bragged on them. He approved of them. He said, you're standing in the pressure, but you're refusing to bow to Caesar. He mentions in verse 13, Satan's throne. You're there. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. And what in the world is he talking about there? I'm not sure. I'll give you three possible explanations, and I think all three of these apply. Some say when he mentions Satan's throne, there was an altar there, a, a magnificent altar on the Acropolis to the, to the Greek god Zeus, and, and many worshiped there. And so some said that when he talks about being there in that, that culture of Satan's throne, that they're talking about that God with a little G, Zeus, and worshiping at that, at that altar. Others said that, that it was worship of one of the, the gods of healing there, where we get our actually today, the, the picture of the God with a little g, the Greeks had, had a staff with a serpent uh, uh, winding around the rod. And that's still the, the, the picture, the, the symbol for the medical field today. He was the, the God to the Greeks of healing. And some say since he was there located in Pergamon, or at least worship of him was located there, that's the throne of Satan. And others said, no, it has to do with Caesar because Caesar was the one who was sitting on the throne. And so when it talks about the throne of Satan, it's talking about that. Now, let me tell you, I think all three of those are appropriate. I think all three of those would apply to Pergamum to say, you're in the midst of the fire. Genuine Christianity will be tested, will be pressured. Not going through the motions. You know, some people say, you know, like I've, I've just, uh, I've been a Christian for a long time and I've never, I've never struggled. I would ask myself the question, if I've never struggled, do I really have a genuine relationship with Christ? Second truth from this first verse here, or second verse, verse 13, God sustains his faithful followers. It's interesting. He says, I know where you live, that, that word where you dwell. It's a word of encouragement, a word of, of, of approval. You're sta- you've stayed there. Someone said when the, tough, when the going gets tough, yeah, there's a whole lot of them. I heard the tough go shopping, whatever, all those things. <laughs> The, the tough get out of Dodge. I remember I was sharing with someone a, a struggle I was having in ministry, and this person said to me, Kevin, get the heck out of Dodge. Run from the problem. 
That's what many do. Jesus says, You're, you've decided to stay there. And God is, God is being faithful to sustain you there, dwelling there. And, and he says that, that you're holding on to my name. So that's a word of approval to them. There were stonecutters in that culture who were being executed because they refused to carve that, that statue of that Greek God that everybody worshipped, the God of, of healing. And if that stonemason decided he wasn't going to do that, they were executed. Folks, look at things in our culture that are leading to that even. If we refuse to bow down to certain things, they're saying there's something wrong with us. But here's the truth for us. God sustains His faithful followers. Third truth, third principle from this verse. God recognizes the difficulty of our situation. Now, I know that's a no-brainer, and I know I probably didn't need to say it, but Jesus said it, so I'm going to say it again. God knows, recognizes the difficulty of our situation. He says, I know where you live. I have a friend, and when he goes through struggles in his life, this is his saying. He says, you know, it seemed like during that period of my life, God lost my address. And I know exactly what he's saying. But let me tell you, folks, God never loses our address. You may be going through the thick of it. Jesus says, I know where you live. Folks, that's a good word. I know where your house is. I know where your tears fall. I know where your heart aches. I know where you live. Jesus recognizes the difficulty of your situation. If you're not sure about that, go back and read the crucifixion account. Go back and read Philippians chapter 2, where it says that the, the Lord Himself, Jesus, stepped out of heaven and endured punishment to the point of death on the cross. He emptied himself in the point of humility to death. He knows where you live. I was reading this week about some Southern Baptist missionaries. Goodness, it was in 2002, quite a few years ago now. They're working in a hospital in Yemen and a, a man walked into that hospital with a, what looked like a child wrapped up in a coat. And he walked through the hospital back into this room where a break room, a work room where they were, and he unleashed what was a rifle. It wasn't a child. And, and he shot and executed several Southern Baptist missionaries. And as our International Mission Board president spoke about the lives of those missionaries, I think it was at the memorial service, I, I wrote this down. He said, the gunman did not take their lives for they had already given them to the people of Yemen years ago. I like that. This gunman did not take those missionaries' lives because when they signed up, they said, I'm, I give myself completely and totally to the cause. Folks, that's the affirming word of approval Jesus has for most of this church in Pergamum. You're there. You're sold out. You're holding on. You're faithful. But I know where you live. Let's look at verse 14 and 15 at the accusation here now. But I have a few things against you. And he goes on to say, you have some that hold to the teaching of Balaam. Balaam was an Old Testament prophet who was, the, the, the Moabites tried to hire, I think it was the Moabites to curse the Israelites and it didn't work and a couple of things were attempted and, and finally he got in there and stirred the people up and caused a, a move of immorality among the people of God. And God still stepped in and, and worked. And, and he says that, that Balak of the Old Testament, there's someone in your midst now like that, in the same way, verse 15, 
you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Remember we said last time that those were people who believed in this, this sense that once I'm saved, I can live any way I want to. They were the, the person who claims once saved, always saved. I can't lose my salvation. By the way, I proclaim that. But they were the person who proclaimed that and then said, since I can't lose it, I don't have to worry about how I live my life. I can do anything I want because God's grace is sufficient. By the way, Paul had something to say about that in Romans chapter 5. I want us to look there. I wasn't going to, but we're going to. Romans chapter 5. Verse 19. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, speaking of Adam, so also through the man, one man's obedience, that's Christ, the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. Paul says that no matter how bad it got, grace was sufficient. But then in verse six, he, I mean chapter 6, verse 1, he says, what should we say then? Should we continue to sin so that grace may multiply? In other words, if God's grace is sufficient to cleanse anything, I can do anything I want, and when he forgives me, it'll just be more grace to him. God will get more glory. He says, absolutely not. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Well, some translations say, no way, by no means. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans was, I can do anything I want and I'll be forgiven. And it had infiltrated the church at Pergamum there. So let's look at a couple of principles here. It is, it is possible to be faithful in some things, yet to have a poor testimony. Can I say that again? It's possible to be faithful in some things, maybe many things, yet still have a poor testimony. You're faithful to church. You even give of your tithes and offerings. You may be, be, be in a place of, of uh, responsibility in the church, yet during the week you live in such a way that there's no difference between you and those in the world. Drugs or alcohol consume your life. You're involved in sexual sin. You do unethical business practices, but you show up to church on Sunday. And everybody looks at you and thinks it's okay, but it's possible, Jesus is saying here, that he could have a few things against you. Let me tell you something, folks. You can be faithful in a lot of areas, but there's some sins that will destroy your testimony. Beware of those. People take great stock in your testimony. You may not speak your testimony, but they look at your life. I was looking this week at Amazon. I, I buy almost everything that I buy that I don't go to a store. I buy on Amazon. And, and one of the things that I do, I found out everybody does apparently, almost everybody, they read the, the buyer's reviews on Amazon. I, I make my purchases based on those. And I, you know, I kind of filter because there's always somebody, there's nothing right with the product. You know, you got to throw that guy out. And there's another one, the product can do no wrong, you throw that out. But, but it, like 80 to 90% of buyers on Amazon take great stock and they believe the testimony of the buyers. Folks, the world is looking at your testimony. And I'll say 90% of the people are watching you, how you live, and they're checking out Jesus by how you live. And it is possible for you to look good for everybody here Yet during the week, you get involved in stuff and you're destroying your testimony. Pastor Steve 
children told a story about talking with one of his neighbors. I don't know what it is about pastors and neighbors, but uh, we get in all kinds of interesting conversations. But he got called over to the fence of one neighbor, and, and this neighbor was an unbeliever, an unchurched person, didn't even attend church anywhere. And he says, hey, Pastor Steve, I want to ask you something about the neighbor on the other side. You know, he's a Christian. And Steve says, okay, here we go. He says, I just got a letter from that neighbor on the other side. This is an unbeliever speaking. I just got a letter from that neighbor on the other side threatening a lawsuit if I don't cut those limbs off that tree that are encroaching on his property. And so the pastor is trying to discern, how do you explain this Christian to this unbeliever? And before he could speak, the guy said, you know what? He said, I'm kind of looking forward to him suing me so I can stand up and tell everybody that that Christian sued me. Folks, that's not a good testimony. That, that unbelieving neighbor spoke truth in that the world is looking at us and, and you can say, I'm a Christian, I go to Coastal Oaks or whatever church you go to and you can brag on that, but our unbelieving neighbors are watching us and we have to be careful by how we respond. The guy said, why didn't he just come and talk to me? I'd have cut the limb off. But now I can hardly wait to tell everybody that that Christian sued me. Watch your testimony. Number five, the next principle. There will always be those who want to infiltrate the church and lower its standards. There will always be those who want to infiltrate the church and lower its standards. Now let me tell you, some people come in with this agenda to lower the church's standards. Other people are a little bit clueless. They just know that the way they live life is okay and they want everybody else to live it too. Be careful. The church today is being, I use the word infiltrate there, I'll use it again, is being infiltrated by people who want us to live by the standards of the world. You need to be politically correct about everything. You need to be careful about how you say things. I heard an interview recently about Tony Dungy uh, outspoken Christian coach who made a statement. He didn't say anything wrong, but the interviewer or the, the person who was analyzing the interview said, well, he really didn't mean that. Here's what he felt, and they made some negative statements. Folks, it's not even what we say, it's what people perceive about us. They're wanting the church to say, we identify with everything in the culture and say it's okay. It's not okay. I just I was thinking of illustrations of this, and I thought about how when, when this church decided that we were going to be a debt-free ministry church. We were in debt and looking for a way to get out of debt. We knew we needed to build this building. We were meeting over there in the gym and uh, setting up chairs every Sunday morning, putting them away every Sunday morning. Uh, we did it for 7, 12 years, something like that. And we were ready to get in a building. We decided at the beginning, we're going to do this debt-free. And I started talking to debt-free, uh, not debt-free, but to fundraising consultants that I could come in contact with on the internet, through our, our conventions, through our other church networks. And I started talking to people. And I made some in inquiries. And here's what those church fundraisers said. Well, you can't build a church debt-free because it's going to cost you too much money. So here's what you want to do. You want to do a short-term loan and get your people to give and pay it off and all. So I, everywhere I went, they said, just borrow the money. Kevin, we'll help you help your church Raise the money by borrowing the money. I said, I don't want that. And I found that most churches, that's the way they operate. That's the way the world does it, right? Go borrow the money. We've decided to let God do it. 
Instead of fundraising, we did fund lowering. We said, God, we need you to provide, and he provided. I am so glad as a church that we didn't let that, that philosophy of the world permeate us. I met with a pastor last week, drove by his church plant, a cowboy church outside of Sinton, and I'd heard they bought new property, and I, I, I saw him out there, and I drove in, and he and another guy are out there working. They've got a portable building, and they're building a porch on the deal, and they built a rodeo arena, which cowboy churches do. That's like their first thing. That this building and all this stuff is going on. And, and he told me, he said, this is all debt free. I said, praise the Lord. There's another one. There are a few of us around. I'm so glad that those kinds of things, there are some churches who take a stand in the area of morals, in the area of leadership, in the area of ministry and borrowing money. Six principles, six truth here. Just a few of the wrong people can ruin a church. I don't know that this is I do. This is what I think is happening here. This church at Pergamon, the majority of them were walking in obedience, being steadfast, but there were a few who were following the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And because of those few, Jesus brings a rebuke to the church. Did you know that just a few people can bring a church down? I've seen it happen. Statistics say that the average pastor who's forced to resign was forced to resign by less than seven people. And folks, we're talking about churches of thousands, not just churches of 400, but churches of, of 1,000 and 2,000. Seven people can put enough pressure to force a pastor to resign. A few of the wrong people can ruin church. That's what happened with the Nicolaitans here. They were ruining Pergamon. By the way, a few of the right people can save a church. My father-in-law pastored a church and he was forced to leave. And I was talking to him about the experience and, and there were all these, these business meetings in this church where people would speak against him and speak, you know, not in favor of him and things went anyway. They, they left and there was a man in the church who was a good friend and is still a good friend to this day. Right, babe? They're still good friends. And he, and he asked him, he said, let me ask you something. You know, you're still in that church. I'm gone. Everything's Okay. Why in those days when there was turmoil in the church, why did you not stand up and speak in favor of me as your pastor? And he said, well, pastor, you've got to understand, these folks are our friends and family and neighbors, and we've got to live in this community and do business with them. So we don't want to rock the boat. Folks, uh, I don't know where you go to church. It may be at your church. People are speaking against a faithful servant of God. You need to stand up and defend that man. Just a few of the wrong people can ruin a church. Let's look at the rebuke now. This rebuke, these things I have against you. I've got a couple of more truths here that are Jesus' rebuke to them. Believers can be lured to accept religious standards that contradict the gospel. This principle from this passage, these believers were lured. It says there in, in verse, um, verse 14, there was a stumbling block there. This picture of eating meat sacrificed to idols, committing sexual immorality. They were, they were lured into these practices by saying they're okay. By the way, we mentioned this before. There were pagan temples there. And the temple priests and priestesses were nothing more than prostitutes. And those, that mindset was being carried over into the church. By the way, years after this, another generation or two away, when, when Rome became a Christian nation... 
and they said everybody's going to be Christian. Now, those pagan temples became churches. And those pagan priests became priests of the church. Just shows you how the slide can happen, how we can be lured in that. I'm not sure what the lure is that would challenge most churches today, but one that stands out to me is, is legalism. Of having to do things a certain way or else you're not right. Having to meet a checklist. I've been told by pastors that they will never set foot in one man's particular. So I'll never set foot in that church because you're not wearing a tie. I said, really? Folks, that's legalism. I'm going to move on. (laughs) I forgot about that. I love that man. But he doesn't understand. Be careful about being lured into things having to be a certain way that don't square with Scripture. Because number eight, there will always be people who want to control the lives of others within the church. There will always be people who want to control the lives of others. Be careful about that. There are some folks who think it's their gift to tell you what to do. Y'all know those? And they will do it in a spirit of love in the Lord. God has, God has spoken to me, and I need to tell you about you. Be careful. That may happen, but that's not so common. Casey Stengel managed the New York Yankees. Was given some, he was giving some advice, and here, here's what he said to, I think, Billy Martin, his manager. He said, he said, when you make out your room assignments at, at training camp for all these rookies coming in, when you make out your rooming assignment, he said, always room your losers together. He said, never put a good guy with a loser. He said, the losers who stay together will blame the manager for everything, but it won't spread if you can keep them isolated. Wouldn't that be great if we could isolate the complainers? Wouldn't it? And let them just completely complain and not mess the rest of us up. Have you noticed how one complainer can just take it all out? Just just the wind out of your sails. There are always going to be people like that. They will influence us. Folks, there are good influences and bad influences. Don't give in to those bad influences. Charles Lowry tells a story about a governor and his entourage were driving through a construction site, some new building going up, and and the governor has his wife with him, and one of the construction workers waves at the governor's wife. So she waves back, and they get in the car, and, and he says, what was up with that? She says, oh, I used to date that guy 25 years ago. It's an old boyfriend. And the governor says, well, it's a good thing you married me so you could be married to the governor. If you married him, you wouldn't be married to the governor. She said, that's right. If I'd married him, he'd be the governor. Let's be influencing one another the right way, okay? The admonition. And and to admonish someone is not only to rebuke, but to rebuke with a word of of uplifting and encouragement to help a person get out of that. You know, not just just you messed up, but you messed up, and here's how to get out of that. Verse 16. 
Therefore, repent. That's that word of rebuke. But he admonishes him, repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword from my mouth. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name, which is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Christ will judge his church. That's the challenge. Repent. He calls us to repentance. Verse 12 says he comes with a sword of judgment. This passage right here says, verse, verse uh, 16, I come to judge with a sword quickly. He's coming to judge and he calls us to repent. Do you know what repentance is? Repentance is realizing you've done wrong, admitting it to God, and changing your ways. That's simple. It's what he calls the church at Pergamon to do. Will you recognize that you're compromising, that you're sliding into the ways of the world, and will you just stop, and will you repent because God's going to come and he's going to judge this church? I read about a, a, a prisoner in Latvia who'd been in, in prison for like almost seven years or longer, and his term was almost up, and he, he decided he wanted to be with his girlfriend more than he wanted to be in prison. I don't blame him, but he, he escaped and after being out on the run for a while, he finally went and turned himself in, and they, they didn't know where he was. They, they probably would never have found him. But he, here's what he said. When he went and turned himself in, he said, he was worried over being caught, and it was way too stressful for him. He figured it would be better just to turn himself in. And so that's what he did. And I thought, there's a picture of where we are. You know, we, sometimes we're just, we're just so stressed over, worried about what's going to happen, and we just need to stop and say, God... I'm wrong. I'm turning myself in. Forgive me. That's repentance. The exhortation here in verse 16, he mentions this truth that the faithful will be rewarded. The faithful will be rewarded. That hidden manna, the name on the white stone, the faithful will be rewarded. That's a good word for this church. That's a good exhortation for us. You stay faithful and God's going to reward you. Now, it may not be the reward you're expecting. I was watching a documentary this weekend on, on Pikes Peak and the um, motorcycle uh, part of the race up to the top of Pikes Peak and these guys are trying to get to the top and all this stuff. And, and basically, you're racing against the clock. It's one motorcycle at a time. And, and um, it was getting very dangerous. There were words were coming back, back down to the bottom of the mountain that there were some accidents and that life flight helicopter takes somebody away and there was sand on the track and oil on the track. And so you don't get to see the track before you go up it after practice. You just, you're, it's blind, all those blind corners. 157 corners. So how do you memorize that? So this one guy on this team, he says to his, his key rider, he says, look, he says, just get to the top. He said, we've been here. We've had fun. It's been a better experience than we ever expected. Don't worry about the reward. Just get to the top. Don't push yourself. And as they talked about that, they said that's really the reward of that is not being number one necessarily, but being one who got to the top. And the reward is knowing that you made it and didn't go over the edge. Folks, that's, that's part of our reward. The Lord will say to us, you made it. You didn't go over the edge. You were faithful that hidden manna just refers to the word of God, and I believe. And that white stone with the new name, it's debated what that means, but it may refer to the Roman practice of when a person won in an athletic competition. They were given a white stone, and their name was engraved on it. 
And they took that white stone to, the, to be the proof to the banquets, to the celebrations that, that they had been uh, awarded in an Olympic or in an in a, in a, in a, uh, athletic event. I like that. Lord, here, here's my white stone with my name on it. I've been faithful. I've been faithful. It's like your admission ticket into heaven, Jesus is saying. So what about the church at Pergamum? The compromising church. In essence, they tried to live in obedience and faithful in the midst of persecution, yet they were letting the ways of the world creep in and mess with their fellowship. I love the story that Ron Hutchcraft tells. I've used it many times. He pulled up to Fort Sumter, which was a Civil War fort. They got off the boat and a a tour guide dressed in period costume as a Civil War soldier greeted them as they got off the boat. But he said the interesting thing about this fort is during the Civil War, it belonged to the Union and then belonged to the Confederacy and then belonged to the Union. So it was back and forth through the Civil War. So to keep the uh, theme going, the soldier that met them was wearing a gray top and blue pants. And he said, you know, it might have fit the tour guide. He said, but if he'd been wearing that back in the 1800s, he'd have been shot from both sides. Now, folks, some of us tried to live the Christian life. Some churches try to, to live both parts with a gray part and a blue part, and you get shot from both sides. Let's live in such a way that we have that white stone with our name on it where the Lord says to us, well done. Don't give in. Hold fast. Pray with me.